cliffcentral.com. Indeed, it is time for the burning platform, which, of course, every week we take to uh, looking at all the current affairs stories that are in the news. We look at what's going on in people's lives and the things people are most concerned with. And this morning's burning platform is no different. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show this morning someone who's no stranger to us. He is Chris Yelland. How are you, sir? All very well, uh, Gareth. Thanks for having me. And sure. Good morning to your listeners. Nice to see you, Chris. I, although, when we're speaking to you, it's usually because things aren't going very well at ESCOM. So, uh, I mean, that, when, when are things going well at ESCOM? You're pretty much busy 24-7 then, right? <laughs> yeah, it has been a busy year, a busy 10 years, in fact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as uh, we face these uh, energy issues, it's become... Uh, something that is on every single person's mind, every business, uh, every farmer, every individual, yeah. every worker, because electricity impacts every single one of us. Absolutely. So I'm looking forward to hearing your um, your input and your thoughts and your expertise on all of this. We're also going to welcome Kogetso Rezane. Hey, Kogetso, nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a lovely morning, so let's keep it moving. Uh, good <laughs> to be it. here for the first time. So I'm very happy to have you on, Kuket. So you're a business informatics professional. You're also a conservative social commentator and a co-host on the Libertarian Man Patriot podcast. And we've spoken uh, to Dumo Denga here before, and he's obviously a colleague of yours. But it's nice to have a fresh face on the burning platform. Thank you. Very good. Okay, so gents, let's just start off, Chris. Um, it seems obvious, but uh, Pumi, do you mind if I start off with asking Chris, what is the state of affairs in our massive and revolting uh monopolistic power supplier what's going on there and 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 i see people new faces on tv explaining to us how everything is under control i saw a new guy the other day who i've never seen before making excuses for escom um is there a pr department in overdrive or is there actually change happening i think there is slow change happening it's a long haul um but the restructuring is in process and it's uh, very necessary and there's a lot of effort being placed in uh, sorting out procurement issues, making sure that it's less wastage. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of effort going into uh, operational issues. Uh, that is the sort of performance of the fleet. I think it's uh, much less successful than they would hope for or we would hope for. Um, there are really are diminishing returns to um, maintenance of old clapped-out plant. Hmm. Uh, and ultimately, we've got to look towards a um, new plant that replaces the old plant um, as, as the way forward. Um, maintenance can only take you so far. Um, and you can keep a car going almost forever, but you cannot push it hard forever. Uh, you can drive it on a Sunday to church, to weddings. Uh, but if you need a workhorse, uh, you have got to have more than a vintage car that has uh, been uh, severely abused. So, but I think the other thing I want to say, uh, uh, Gareth, uh, is that we mustn't only look to Eskom's dysfunctionality. Um, the problems in the energy sector go much further than that, uh, from Eskom to the municipal electricity sector and, in fact, to the whole energy sector, uh, which really needs a thorough uh, relook. So, Chris, first of all, I, I drove to Pumalanga just the other day, and I drove past uh, either Kusine or Medupi or both. And I was looking at them, and, and they're these huge constructions, right? And they're not that old. I mean, these were built quite recently, but they seem to always be in dysfunction. There's always some problem. There's always something going on, whether it's coal supply or whether it's one of the units that has gone down, one of them that hasn't been maintained. 
What is the state of affairs there? Because we paid an absolute fortune for those two new power stations, and we haven't done anything since then. So we're still relying on them, and we haven't got plans to build any new ones, do we? Not from Eskom, no. Mm. Uh, so Madubi and Kusili are the last of Eskom's uh, new build, um, and nothing on the plan of the integrated resource plan for electricity, which looks at the next 10 years, uh, is any further new build coming from Eskom besides this Madubi and Kusili. And uh, to make your point, the performance of these plants is very, very far from what it should be. Uh, the plants have actually brought Eskom to its very knees. And not only that, impacted massively on the economy of South Africa, not just from cost, time overruns, which are, are expensive indeed, but more from the, the, the impact on the economy of load shedding. If those plants had been delivered on time and on budget, uh, we wouldn't have load shedding today. So, for example, Kusili Power Station, running six, seven years late at the moment, uh, is only half built. <laughs> and that half that has been built um, is performing worse than the very worst of Eskom's old power power stations. So it's outrageous. It should be helping to bring up the average energy availability factor, but it's actually bringing it down. So the performance of 50% of the plant is only about 30% of what it should be. So 30% of 50% uh, is about, I don't know, 15%. Uh, and that's what we're getting instead of the design output. Uh, and that's not acceptable. Hmm. Pumi, I mean, I know this is something we, we've spoken about so many times. You probably, you're probably sick of it too. I know lots of people are sick of it, but we've got to address these things. Uh, what, what, what do you, what do you want to Garrett know from face. Chris? Yeah, I know. I'm just, I'm horrified. I really Fix am. your face. I know. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things, and, and a couple of days ago, I think there was a statement or at, at a press conference with hmm. um, ESCOM CEO Dereta saying that there's not only is Eskom suffering from all of the issues you're talking about now, Chris, of kind of output and procurement inefficiencies and all of that kind of stuff. You also talked about a skills um, shortage, which, you know, kind of made me sit up and go, wow, okay. So all these many years later, the skills gap hasn't been identified and planned for and covered. And is the skills gap maybe also not in the executive suite. It is in the executive suite. There is an executive uh, who is responsible for, um, uh, for human resources. But to be honest, I hear very, very little from her. Uh, Elsie Pule, um, I never see her at these um, media briefings. Um, and I don't hear a lot of statements coming from her. Uh, we do hear from the CEO and the COO about these uh, human resource issues. Um, and I think it's true to say that morale at ESCOM is very, very low. And this is leading to loss of good people, black and white. Uh, and um, I think the skills issue is real. Um, and one of the most concerning issues is that the skills issues that has been raised by the CEO and the COO at Kuburg. Now, Kuburg is obviously a nuclear power station uh, and has long been a kind of a flagship of Eskom uh, for good performance. And it's currently undergoing what is said to be the most complex upgrade project in the history of Kuburg since it was commissioned. And at the same time, the COO 
you know, says that he is worried. It keeps him awake at night. The loss of skilled people who uh, are lost to international projects, uh, projects taking place in Egypt, Turkey, uh, in the Middle East, uh, in India, uh, you know, they are poaching good people uh, and leaving Eskim under-resourced at a very critical time uh, during this upgrade. Mm. Sure. I don't want you to feel like we're ignoring What you. about the oh, private sector? Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, go ahead. So, uh, no, sorry. So, you know, when, when you talk about like a skills, <laughs> sorry, Kuketso, talking about a, a kind of a skills <clears throat> migration, also then, for me, alerts us to possibly a private sector also starting up that is absorbing these skills. Sure, some are leaving the country, but is there some kind of private sector or private and we hear lots of talk about the IPPs, the independent power producers. And there's been murmurings of a whole lot of those IPP, um, be, IPPs being signed off and possibly coming on stream soon. Yes, no? Now look, the kind of skills uh, within <clears throat> ESCOM are quite wide-ranging, uh, from very specialized engineering skills uh, through to project management skills, administrative skills, procurement, etc. So I think the people at ESCOM uh, are in demand uh, across a wide range of sectors, um, including the private sector in South Africa, as well as uh, internationally. Um, so you have to be competitive. Uh, your salaries have to be competitive. But more, it's more, more, more than just money. It's also about satisfaction and growth and a feeling of um, working in an environment that is uh, really positive and moving forward. And unfortunately, the environment at the moment at Eskom, the morale is low. Um, yeah. They're coming under a lot of pressure. There was a time when Eskom people were very proud to wear their Eskom windbreaker. Uh, today, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to wear that. No, uh, because people attack you in the street. There's hostility. There's yeah. hostility out there. So, so does that break the radar? Does Andre the Raider then know what to do to turn those things around? I mean, he doesn't have a shiny track record in other industries yeah. either. Well, my, <clears throat> my personal opinion is that he does know what to do, uh, but it's a team effort. Eskom is not one man or one woman. It's 40,000 people. And the real test of leadership is to inspire people, to inspire your board, to instill them with confidence, to inspire your executive team, and drive the, um, the, the ethos and the vision and mission of the company through many, many layers of people. And being an executive, uh, like being a leader, is, is about uh, having a vision, understanding the challenges and threats that are facing you, trying to find those opportunities and then motivating a team because it cannot be done by one person. It can, right. it's, it's a massive project. So, uh, Koketso, I don't want you to think that we're ignoring you, but I promise you your time is coming and then Chris is going to feel like he doesn't want to talk about the State of the Nation address and all this kind of thing. So, I mean, do you have any questions relating to energy? Because you, just like all the rest of us, sometimes sit in the dark. You have work to do. It gets in the way of productivity. It, it ruins, uh, for many people, 
their opportunity to get things done at home or at work. Uh, what what kinds of questions do you have for, for Chris Yellen this morning? Because I've got one other one, but I'll throw it in after you have a go. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, maybe it's to just bring it back home a little bit. The question I have is, you know, if you go to any company, as soon as the best talent leaves, management typically gets involved and say, right, how do we stop the flight of, you know, our best human capital here? Uh, in an unfortunate scenario, they tend to leave for the competition. In our case, that would then be leaving to, like you mentioned, Europe, uh, the Middle East, even North Africa, where they are really looking to expand on their energy grid. Yeah. So in a normal scenario, um, management steps in and says, right, we need to stop this because the cost about the cost around losing your best employees is quite a heavy one. But you really don't see much of that kind of thinking happening at ESCOM. So my question is, firstly, what is actually being done about the swaths of engineers who are available, who are in the country, who are actually, you know, to some degree able to help alleviate the problem at the very least. You never hear of it. Instead, there's always one problem compounding into another, compounding into another. Then the second short one, again, is if, if you go to any company, sort of projects such as Kusile or Midupi actually fail. You know, people are normally, you lose your job, for lack of a better term. You know, you lose your job, you're replaced. Something happens uh, that, you know, isn't pleasant for the people or person responsible. In ESCOM's case, we like to think about the CEO a lot because the CEO swapped hands quite a few times over the last few years. But who is actually responsible for these massive portfolios, which are a drain on the tax budget, uh, which are a drain on, you know, money that could have been used for other things. So, right. yeah, that's my other question yeah, there. Damn right. Accountability. So, Chris, you want to have a go at that? Yeah, look, let's first of all look at the human resource issues. Um, as I say, I agree with you. We don't hear enough about the human resource issues. And uh, we don't hear enough from the executive responsible for HR. Um, there is, of course, a dilemma at Eskom. Uh, on the one hand, Eskom itself would acknowledge that they are, in fact, overstaffed. Um, and there are efforts to reduce the staff complement. Uh, of course, their hands are somewhat tied uh, because the president has announced there will be no retrenchments. So they have to rely on voluntary severance packages as well as natural attrition, and it is having an effect. The numbers are coming down. At the same time, they need more of the right kind of people with specific um, skills. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do hear, and I've been to some media briefings where they have detailed that they are searching for um, and, and recruiting uh, key people in the generation sector, which is the sector that is performing so badly at the moment. And, and, so and something is happening, but I'm sure not enough. On the question about responsibility and accountability and who has been making these terrible decisions and whether or not they've paid the price? Yeah, we know that during the years of state capture, things at ESCOM were frankly completely out of control. At board level, there were the wrong appointments by a number of ministers, Minister Brown, Minister uh, Kigaba, the wrong people were put in place for the wrong reasons at board level, at the CEO level, at the executive level. 
the the organization was out of control. Procurement was completely, totally out of control. Coal procurement and all other kinds of yeah. procurement. You only have to look at the project management was out of control at Madupi and Kusili. And we, we know about the irregularities at Kusili because they are well uh, publicized and in the public domain. And so this period, and I'm not saying it only started five years ago or, or you know, six or seven years ago during the years of state capture. No, uh, we had, before then, we mustn't forget, before then. we had load shedding yeah. when Alec Irwin was the minister in, in that portfolio. Okay. Do you remember? Correct. And everybody says, yeah, then, oh, no, but the Tabombeki administration, everything ran well. They stopped looking after the power plants and they stopped planning forward in advance. And we know that the Guptas made a ton of cash out of mostly the coal side of things. In fact, that's probably where they made the lion's share of their money. Um, but but we don't hear about any heads rolling. We see these guys pitching up at the at the uh, the hearings in front of Judge Zondo, but nothing's happened to them. They're probably still living large, you know, nice big pensions. But of course, accountability in South Africa is, a, is an area that needs to be addressed. I mean, but let's uh, be fair. Eskom itself is not an investigating authority. Mm. It's got a hard enough job uh, doing what it's supposed to do, and that is to provide abundant, low-cost, reliable electricity uh, to business, to uh, uh, industry, to consumers, to farmers, etc. Uh, and and uh, these kind of investigations are very distracting. Eskom says that they have now placed volumes of evidence. Uh, before the special investigation unit, before the prosecuting authorities, and really, it's their job to take no. it forward. Um, and uh, we know it's not just at Eskom, but across the board, that the prosecuting authorities seem to be overwhelmed, yeah. under-resourced, hollowed out, uh, and are just not producing the prosecutions. <laughs> They're not even bringing them to court, let alone yeah. uh, achieving prosecution. So I think the problem there goes well, well beyond Eskom. There is a new era of accountability at Eskom. I'm sure there's lots more to be done, plenty. But <laughs> at least there's a new attitude. <laughs> uh, we've still got to see that drive through the organization and also drive through the prosecuting so, authorities so Chris, and then finally the courts. Well, that's a good segue. It's a good segue because the one thing that part two of the Zondo Commission has been, almost everybody has concentrated on between Lynn Brown, Minister Kigaba, and ESCOM have been a big focus mm. of the second part of the Zondo Commission because that then has laid out, again, thousands and thousands and thousands mm. of very small parts, where all the moving parts are, who did what when. The investigations were done by the commission, by the commission's investigators. There's lots of evidence sitting out there. But, you know, and this past Sunday again, I saw a little opinion piece coming out of Ms. Shamila Badoi's office, mm. written by Ms. Shamila Badoi, saying, listen, it's going to take a while. Mm -hmm. so, Tick tock. While we wait. Yeah. May I just add uh, your point? Yes, uh, the volume one and volume two have been very illuminating. But the big one is volume three. Volume three is going to deal with ESCOM. So volume two did touch on Minister Brown and, uh, and Minister Gigaba, but more in their roles at SAA and Danel uh, and Transnet. Mm. ESCOM is still to come. And I think at the end of this month, uh, is going to be very, very revealing uh, as to uh, where the problems were at Eskim itself.
But I don't think, I think most of us are done with revelations. Most of this information, you know, we've seen it, we've heard it. It's in passing. Some of it has been very clearly laid out in all sorts of of, um, investigative journalism reports, all of that kind of stuff. We're done. Okay. Mm. We don't need it to be, we don't need it to be shown to us. We just want somebody in like orange overalls. Yeah. We right. want somebody in over, orange overalls. Yeah. We want to see people. Yeah. We want to see heads roll. So I'm... Look, I agree entirely. But you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of an energy guy and electricity mm. guy, and so uh, yes, those are issues facing South Africa as a country uh, that have to be dealt with. Um, but when it comes to Eskom, it, it's kind of out of its hands once it hands over the evidence mm. to the prosecuting sure. authorities. It's done what it can do uh, what's within its power to do and i think there is more to be done yes uh, but all right it's done quite a chris, lot chris i'm going to let you you go after this because we we want to get into dalimpofu afri forum we want to talk about state capture some more and and stuff that's non-related to energy and i'm very much aware of, of your time and the fact that you've you've got a lot of people that you have to give expertise to um but before we go uh, the amount of money we've spent and wasted which is exorbitant. We could have built some of the best nuclear energy in in the world, and we could have powered up most of this continent if we'd been really thoughtful about this. Nuclear really is the only way that we're going to be able to provide enough energy. If we did solar and we covered the entire Karoo in solar panels, maybe we'd get close. Wind, shore, a little bit of water, but all of that together isn't going to get us near the amount of energy we need, right? So we should have just maybe gone down that path in the very beginning. And of course, people are nervous about nuclear because when they think nuclear, they think Chernobyl and they think Three Mile Island. But let's be fair. It's the cleanest, safest, and most uh, energy productive way of, of, of creating the kind of electricity volumes that we need. We should have just done that. Looking back now with the benefit of hindsight, do you agree with me or not? No, completely disagree, Gareth. Um, nuclear ticks some of the boxes, but it has very significant issues. The, the business case for nuclear is very, very poor. And uh, what we need in South Africa going forward nuclear will not solve that problem. Mm. So let me just try and paint the reality. The reality is that right now we face a shortage of electricity of about 6,000 megawatts. Nuclear, they're only talking about 2,500 megawatts and they're only talking about it in 2035. (laughs) There is no solution in the next 15 years, number one. Number two, in the next 15 years, the penetration of variable renewable energy is going to increase in the mix from currently about 6% to about 35% of the mix. Now, that is variable renewable energy. What we need to complement variable renewable energy is not a steady source of power that runs 24 hours a day. What we need is flexible generation that can fill the gaps in the variable renewable energy. 2,500 megawatts of fixed capacity running 24 hours a day does not solve anything of the need to complement 
25,000 megawatts mm. of renewable energy, variable renewable energy. What we need is flexible renewable energy. Now, let me just say that why are we getting this massive increase in problematic variable renewable energy? Why? Because it is so cheap. It is coming in now, the latest bid window, at 47 cents a kilowatt hour, which is half the price of coal and about a third to a quarter of the price of new, new nuclear. So we have to buy as much cheap energy as we can, get our hands on, and we need to deal with the problems that that variable renewable energy brings, which is, is its variability. Right. And the way to deal with that problem is not nuclear and it's not coal, it's gas to power, it's battery storage, and it's other energy storage technologies that are emerging. Listen, at this point, Chris, I'm, I'm going wow. I'm to I'm I'm bow to your superior knowledge on the subject, but I, I really just hope someone somewhere is going to start implementing this stuff soon. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in the dark a whole lot more often. It's always good to catch up with you. Chris Yelland, of course, an energy analyst, an electrical engineer, a public speaker, writer, consultant, and the MD at EE Business Intelligence. Thank you very much for making time for us this morning, Chris. Thank you, Gareth, and thank, thank you, you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. There we go. Chris Yellen, so Coquetso, the stage is yours now. Let's just talk about a few <laughs> things a few things on your agenda because a lot of people in the comments are talking about Dalim Pofu, and maybe we should start with him because he is the subject of, of much conversation. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've got my, my own feelings about him as, as a human being, and I like the guy. He, he obviously you know, helped me out in my case against Mnet, and we won. And he's a, he's a smart man, and he's by no means someone who should be discounted as being an important figure in both politics and the law. But he also is someone who attracts a huge amount of attention. He seems to be all over the place at the moment. People are talking about him at the Judicial Services Commission. They're saying he's defending the guy who set fire to Parliament. They're saying he's defending Jacob Zuma. He seems to be the busiest man in the legal business in South Africa. What are your feelings on whether he might be doing th things right, wrong, spreading himself a bit thin, whether or not he's a credible human being anymore, and what kind of stuff you would, uh, you'd like to communicate in terms of what you think of Dalim Pofu? Well, um, so, yeah, Asterisk, I've never met the man, but <laughs> I honestly believe he is building a cult of personality that is building a cloud around him that says he is a superstar legal expert lawyer who, you know, given the backdrop of uh, him and the EFF, is effectively doing this for black people. Now, there's people who fall for it. I certainly don't because at the end of the day, he is securing the bag. Unfortunately, with him being all over the places, the smart thing would be to rather say, let me build a career uh, based on stacks and stacks of me winning in court. Dali isn't making that approach. He wants to be at the forefront of every contentious case, uh, every case that involves some form of social, you know, so social discord out there in the public about who's innocent and who's not, particularly with issues regarding race. I don't think it's a good move because as a legal professional, you'd rather be known for your work and not necessarily the type or the kind of client you typically take on. And it's going to bite him. But I believe he's doing this because he's got grander ambitions in future, maybe hmm. to be a chief justice or something of that type. Hmm. I don't know. But yeah, uh, as someone who is not a legal expert, etc., um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that, look, he's all over the place and he's trying to build a cult of personality around himself.
Pumi, you've been in advertising, branding um, for a long, long time. You know this stuff. Do you think that that's a that's a? I mean, I, I'm quite impressed by the fact that Gorgetsa sees a long-term plan here. Do you, is that what you think Dali's up to? You think he's building this cult of personality so he can capitalize at some point? I mean, he's probably making money okay. in the meantime anyway. <laughs> I think Dali is about making money. And and no matter no matter what people around Dali might want to to tell us, Dali is not a, Dali is not a victim here. Okay, mm. So Dali is... is Unfortunately for him, the cases that he takes on and the way in which he takes those cases on, he's not winning in terms of making himself this kind of call Dalimpofu. <laughs> if you're in trouble, call Dalimpofu. But the kind of people who do call on Dalimpofu and the people whose calls he does answer, are, you know, are a particular type of person. Somebody said in the comments here that he seems to be kind of like Zuma cronies. Mm. That's who he's answering for. Back I'm just saying, the wall. You, you know what? Mm. And, and unfortunately, when you listen to him argue, when you then listen to him argue the cases that he argues, his arguments are flimsy. Yeah. So he doesn't make <laughs> he doesn't make a case for himself. If he is trying to build a, a cult of personality around himself and the cases he takes on, he better start winning some. <laughs> you know, he's yeah. doing more. He, he's doing more in getting people's cases thrown out, and mm. yeah, <laughs> then he has gotten people off. So I feel sorry for um, Ma Mafu. Is it Mafu, the guy Ma with the Mafe. parliamentary Mafe. fire? Mafe. Yeah. I feel sorry for him because I'm kind of going, eh, is Dali the person that you want in your corner? Because he doesn't seem to, you know, he, he, he tends to take on cases and then say, oh, it's a racial matter. You mm. know, everything for him is so superficial. Mm. So yeah. I don't know if, if he's building towards becoming a chief justice. He may get there if certain people's political careers go in a particular way. Yeah. But on his own merits, Mm, I don't think he's going to do it. So, guys, and, and this kind of casting him. So, and I, I do just want to say, and this kind of casting him now with all of the hoo ha around him and how he behaved at the JSE, at the interviews, mm -hmm. of casting him as some kind of, again, victim, is just reprehensible. Dali was awful. No one, so a lot of people are talking about the, the, the kind of the insinuation around, um, Danston Mulambo and mm. the un, unproven rumors of sexual misconduct. Lots of people are talking about that. And very few people are talking about the fact that Dali basically said to Judge Maya, you know, insinuated that he and Judge Maya had spent the night together on some, and it's like, that's so disgusting, so slimy. That is tantamount to that is tantamount to, to sexual harassment too. It is, absolutely. And and the fact that he's doing that just because she is a woman is, is even more outrageous because he's the one who kept saying, No, 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 you know, we, we need we need to have women represented and all of this stuff. It's a personal issue which he's brought out into the public and I think she should sue him for it, frankly. <laughs> Personal issue. It's not even a personal issue. It's but a non-thing. Don't you think yeah. she should? What is irrelevant in that context? Absolutely. Of just you know, he 
he worked for her yeah. and they had like with uh, one other person and overnight mm-hmm. kind of preparing for and so he's just like <laughs> but he's, he's clearly trying to undermine and you know to to make her seem foolish and if that isn't a classic misogynistic move i don't know what is so anyway I do want to move on from him because I know you guys are so excited about the State of the Nation address today. You're so excited to hear from our chief executive officer of the country, the president, Matamela Cyril Ramaphosa. So what are we expecting? Because I saw headlines in some of the news outlets, not surprisingly the ones that love Cyril, the ones who were praying for Cyril in 2020. They all say, oh, it's very great expectations ahead of Sona 2022. I'm less enthusiastic Am I in good company this morning or not? Look, I think I think I'm nervous more than anything about what's going to happen later tonight. Why? So, this particular state of the nation, maybe there's something to be said in that Cyril has to do the unfortunate thing of delivering a state of the nation not in the National Assembly because you know uh, that's actually gone up in flames. Yeah. So. It's not a good look, uh, firstly. And uh, yeah, he, he has to say something just around that just so he can effectively cover himself for the future. But I'm nervous because I'm afraid that he might just turn this entire debacle into post-COVID recovery, um, et cetera, et cetera. And the unfortunate thing is post-COVID recovery, at least in Cyril's mind, involves some form of broad-based black economic empowerment for the nation at whole, et cetera. And as someone who is the second biggest beneficiary of BEE, of course, that's all he knows. And unfortunately for the clear masses, BEE isn't really working. So I'm just afraid that he's going to shove uh, BEE fixing the economy, et cetera, down our throats. And that's really not what you want to do to get things back on track. You know, what about all the other non-BEE compliant businesses that have been affected by the lockdown? So I'm afraid he's going to do that. Um, there's also talk that, you know, our taxes might actually go up as well, which, again, is a terrible idea. Uh, the middle class has significantly dwindled during the pandemic. And the last thing you want to do is actually then come out and say that, right, thank you, middle class. The few of you who actually remain in the country, A, and still have a job, B, we are going to siphon additional funds out of your payslip. Hey, we need to recover, right? There's no benevolence in any of that, unfortunately. It's just... It's, it's the same hymn book that Cyril himself particularly uh, is well-versed in singing out of. And really, that's what makes me nervous. This is not how you put a country back uh, back on track. Ideally, what should it, what he should have been doing was making life a little bit easier so that people can recover off, off their own accord. You know, get your skills out there in the marketplace and actually do something you're good at, which in turn will not just feed you and your family, but will help build the country. That's not going to happen. I'm afraid Cyril's going to use the entire sauna as a means to say, this is how we're going to rebuild the country. And if you're not black, then you're not invited to the table. What do you say, Pums? What do you, what do you have to say, Pumi? I mean, do you, are you looking forward to the State of the Nation address? You're such a big Cyril fan. <laughs> so, you know, the job of the State of the Nation address is supposed to lay out for the rest of us, what the plans of Cyril and his cabinet are for the coming year. They're supposed to set the tempo of the things that are important 
and the things that they will be concentrating on and the things that they will be working towards. And what we've seen in the past with Cyril is a lot of pie in the sky. So, you know, <laughs> Cyril first came out with his Tuma Mina. And smart cities. Which sounded. Don't forget smart which, cities, you know. That was also. Which big. sounded so like, you know, this guy is and very, at the time, sort of kind of setting a tone that says, this is a person who's going to do something. So Tumamina, as everybody now knows, means send me, right? Mm -hmm. And he was kind of standing up and saying, I'm going to get the job done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a year later, we were all like, whoa, really? But the year later was also in the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of, of the the epidemic, we saw him come out and be very strong and kind of looking at everything else that was happening in the world. And we, we, we thought, okay, he's going to, he's going to take control. He's going to use this opportunity. He's going to clean up his death. Nothing. Instead, what we saw was we saw PPE scandals, right? And we saw money being stolen in unprecedented kind of amounts. And Cyril's done nothing about it. He's done nothing about it except come out and say, this won't stand. This won't, you know, he started out by saying this won't happen. And then it happened. And then he came out and he said, this won't stand. Something will be done about it. Mm -hmm. And we're still waiting for something to be done about it. So, and then smart cities, you know, all pie in the sky. And we're kind of going, yeah, can you just get the electricity running? You know, so we're going to have more of that. We're going to have more of Cyril's kind of pie in the sky. This could be, this is what we, yeah. but we're not going to, we're not going to have concrete things out of Cyril. We're not going to get anything concrete out of him. We're not going to get any concrete commitments out of him. We're not going to get any concrete feedback from him that says no. in the past year this is what we've done and this is what we've gotten right and this we're not going to get that from him well he's got very he's got very little to boast about actually and in the light of all the state capture stuff that's going on which we mustn't forget happened while he was number two in the government uh again everybody seems to to just conveniently forget the fact that while all of this was going down he was sitting there watching it and and, and you know, claims that he was shocked by everything when it was when it was eventually revealed and we're going to get more uh, of the media's mainstream media's credibility stripped away from them because they're going to treat him with kid gloves. Mm -hmm. We're going to come out of it and mm -hmm. the opposed analysis is going to be softly, softly, all mm -hmm. nice about him. So we're getting more erosion of kind of the trust that we have in that third estate. Absolutely. But I am, I, and as you know, I remain hopeful that the country, the people within us are beginning, the veil has fallen, right? So the people yeah. have begun to see what isn't working with Cyril and his party. People have are now quite aware of the fact that it's not Cyril is unable to turn the ANC around and get rid of the rotten apples in the ANC. People can now see that it's the ANC that is the problem. It's yeah. everybody. Right. So, you know, the ironically then, ironically, their idea of collective responsibility has come full circle and now they will end up paying the price collectively. 
I, I mean, it can't happen too soon, if you ask me. We thought the last election would be a lot more decisive. But every day, less and less of the power that they once had, and they'll never get it back. It's a, it's a, it's a one-way street, and it's all heading downhill for them. So let's just look at one other thing, because we, we are kind of running short on time, and there's a lot that I want to talk about with uh, Gorgetsa this morning. But Gorgetsa, one of the big stories of this week is that Afri Forum decided to take Mbuisen and Glossi to court, and they also said that you know Julius and, and and many people in the in the EFF have been romanticizing the idea of killing Boers. There's also the question of whether or not a direct threat was made by Mbuiseni when he tweeted something the other day about you know we'll we'll show you with, with guns and bombs and all kinds of things. What do you think's really going on there? And 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 is the media again just glomming on to a race story because it gets its you know gets attention, it's clickbait? Or is there something real going on here that needs a, a bit of our attention this morning? Look, I don't think any threat to life should be taken lightly. Uh, whether it's put in a song or it's actually, you know, hearsay uh, in a conversation, that sort of thing. And that's exactly what uh, the EFF, Mbuiseni, uh, Julius, etc. That's exactly what they did when they go around chanting the song. You know, mm. it's it's not a nice song. It's not a good song. And it's in effect saying that, these people or certain class of people uh, are not deserving of life. And that's something that has to be taken seriously. Mm. In an ideal world, you would have loved to see the South African Human Rights Commission step in, their Chapter 9 institution, of course, but they seem to be very selective in terms of cases they take on. They were very quick to jump on the Tlix shampoo bandwagon, of course, but mm. when, uh, when the EFF sings Kill the Boer, they are nowhere to be found. Instead, they even made a statement basically saying that, no, they do not classify that as hate speech because, you know, there is freedom of speech within political circles. So ideally, it should have actually gone to the SAHRC, started there and then stopped there, slapped the EFF with a fine, told them not to do it again. Instead, they didn't do that and hence Afri Forum have then decided to take this thing to court. The worst part about me about this whole thing is people actually don't want to look at the case on its own merit. You know, they just see it as A, EFF equal, uh, therefore they're racist versus Afri Forum, therefore they're racist. And then they literally see it mm. as a black versus white thing. And I don't believe that's how we should actually approach these things. You know, look at the case on its own merit and look at what, at what is actually being uh, fought over in court. And that is a hate speech uh, line item in a song, uh, which we know they do tend to cause harm. I mean, look what happened in Senegal just, well, it feels like just a year ago, but it's effectively almost a year and a half ago now where songs were sang that basically incited people to go out into the field and cause property damage and steal from the farm, etc. And that's exactly what happened. So there is a case to be made that when you say kill the boar, you are in effect saying that I am empowering you to actually the to actually take the life of someone who happens to be Afrikaans, who happens to be a farmer. And uh, that's a, that is a direct threat on their life, uh, which should be taken seriously. So I really do hope that the EFF uh, do learn their lesson from this. I hope they get slapped with a, yet another cost order with this whole thing as well, because I believe we need to set a precedent that in our project to build the country, which is taking longer than it should, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, we really like, should like be Kusile going backwards. Like Medupi, right? <laughs> Yeah, like Kosile and Midupi, you know, yeah, we really shouldn't be doing things like this if we really uh, want to, uh, you know, advocate for human rights at a basic level and nation building at a secondary level after that. Yeah. Mm. And the that's... demonstration outside that court by EFF supporters is not going to help their case. But yeah, the EFF don't learn. Poor. 
the EFF don't learn from these experiences. Yeah. Uh, the EFF currently are the single biggest institutional donor to every forum because of the number of cost orders <laughs> that they've had to make. <laughs> That's a hell of a way to look at it. I hadn't they thought are. of that before. But, but they are. <laughs> I mean, they have had to pay every forum. I think this is the third time that they're going yeah. after them for a cost order. And they've lost the other two, by the way. So they are the single, the single biggest institutional donor to every forum. So they don't lend. So in their hate, they're actually funding the people they uh, they have disdain for. Yeah. It's that 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 seems to me like a fair way for us to balance out the uh, the things that they say. You look at what the things are that they have to do. All right, so guys, we, it's maybe worth just referring very briefly to some of the things that are going on internationally. We haven't spoken about Ukraine and Russia at all. Do either of you have any any peculiar insights to this? Do you have any any analysis you want to share on on Russia, on on Ukraine? Because it's bubbling there in the background, but no one's pressing any actual buttons to make things go. Uh, do you think that I'll this, tell you what. But do you think this is this is going to be World War Three, or do you think it's going to be a damp squib? So normally, what happens is if people credibly feel threatened, uh, they tend to flee their country. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, long before tanks actually roll in, uh, you know, as a man, you might just decide, let me take my family, let's move to greener pastures, let me ensure the safety of my loved ones and my offspring, etc. Mm-hmm. And mothers will do the same, even if it means leaving your husband behind. We see this in uh, parts of the Middle East where, you know, um, women risk it all effectively to yes. leave. You don't see this happening with Ukrainians. Uh, they are not fleeing the country en masse. They are not looking to emigrate immediately. And that for me tells me that they don't take this thing as serious as some of the Western media would like us to believe. Now, there is something to be said in that every time a, a, a sitting U.S. president is under extreme pressure, um, part of the list of options here to really rescue their presidency, uh, especially if they're still in their first term, which Biden is in, Part of this is to say, okay, um, hang on a minute, you know, the situation is bad, we need to go to war. By going to war, what that then does is it kicks off that military-industrial complex into high gear. People are then employed, money starts flowing from the government uh, into people's hands, and therefore people are then happy with the presidency because, you know, it means that you can you get to put food on the table, this, buy 2.5 cars. Is this the, and, wa- uh, the, wag, the, the, the wag the dog theory? So you, you reckon that this is a, a knee-jerk response or a calculated response from the Biden regime because they are plunging into new depths on their their polling at the moment and also if you notice in america that the uh, the blue states and the cities that have been the most masked the most vaccine strong all the rest of it are suddenly pulling back and changing direction as they realize that they're out of step with the ordinary american who's sick to death of covid they're all starting to change just because they know the midterm elections are coming up you you really think it's that cynical kukatsu so I don't think that yep. Biden will do that, though. I think that the American population is a little bit wary of war. And the way in which they left that Afghanistan kind of makes it mm. difficult for them at this point. It's, it's it, to make it a popular decision, yeah. which is what the Vlad is counting on, right? That's why yeah. he keeps pressing that button. Um, there's a very interesting... And it's, it's a photo essay on New York Times. Uh, yesterday, I think they, they put it up. You talk about what is happening in the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And looking 
for me, looking at those images, it reminded me very much of what we see in Zimbabwe, where people are still living there. You know, so th there's we here in South Africa have this particular view, and that's that's what's happening in the Ukraine too. There is a particular view of what's happening in the Ukraine, and but when you see the bombed houses from where there has been active engagement between the fighting forces. When you see th those those bombed houses, when you see the barbed wire, um, kind of the barbed wire separating Russia and the Ukraine, and then at the very same time, kind of look further afield from where there is no active fighting and you see the ordinary person trying to get to the to their job in, in, in some chemical plant yeah. or there's there's a, a very touching image actually of a lady walking past and there's kind of a half bombed building and she's got her little groceries walking past and uh, graffiti on the wall then you, you know it's it's a it's a very tense situation mm. that's happening there i also watch a lot of rt i also watch lots of russian <laughs> media it's a very tense situation but you can see the the game that's being played out there with people's lives yeah. it's a game being played out with people's lives and it's horrendous to say the least for me you know so Putin is pushing his luck, but he knows that America on the other side is weak. Joe Biden is going to be reluctant to to get into this like war because the American people don't have a taste for it because of what happened to them in Afghanistan. So it's do you do and you now he's brought China to I mean, his side. I mean, know? I don't think actually that your analysis either of them are mutually exclusive. Um, because I do think Pumi's just looking at it from the Russian point of view and, and you're looking at it from the American point of view could get so, but it could work out well for both. Putin could get to take the Ukraine on as a vassal state. Um, and, and Biden could distract people long enough from his own domestic failure and his failure in Afghanistan to, to be able to ratchet up a few popularity points at the polls. But either way, the Democrats are pretty screwed in the U.S. at the moment. And it seems like all the stuff they were really banking on. The only one that still works for them is, ironically, racism. And they pull this out every time they need something to save them. They're now using it against Joe Rogan, of all people. Um, do you have any thoughts on that since you run your own podcast and we're talking about the world's biggest podcaster, Gorgetsu? Yeah, I think Rogan is hes a soft target, really. Um, a very notable distraction, if, if, if anything, you know. Um, there's this there's this thought that goes out that perhaps uh, Spotify uh, has made Joe Rogan big, where that's not the case. Joe Rogan actually built himself up as a podcaster long before he got a uh, lovely paycheck from Spotify. But I think he's a soft target in that no one can really claim him uh, on the political spectrum. That is, mm. and you know, as we know, with much of the left, if you're not part of them, then you are an automatic enemy. And we've mm. seen them do this to Rogan and others before. So I think he's a soft target. At the end of the day, um, they it's textbook cancellation, really. And I don't think it's really going to work because he's got too many friends now. And you know, as you've seen, even when people try to cancel you, Gareth. Um, you know, it'll die down, you know, it'll just fade with the news cycle. What, what, what and at the end of the day, you'll still carry on. What do you both think of the fact that he apologized? I mean, we know in America, the N-word is like a magic word, right? It has 
superpowers. Some people believe that there is something about that word that just imbues it with, uh, with, with the properties like, you know, Harry Potter might have where he casts a spell. And what they've done is they've gone and cut a whole lot of clips of where either he was discussing the lyrics of a rap song or he was quoting someone else or he was talking about comedy and whether or not the N-word should be used in comedy. You know, these are things that happened nine years ago. Um, and he apologized. He said, look, I genuinely feel if I've hurt someone that I should apologize, which I think is something he probably didn't have to do. The fact that he did do it shows that he's got, you know, at least he's a good faith uh, interlocutor in this case. But do you guys feel he had to apologize? Do you think that the this is just America banging on the same old drum? Or do you think that there is something about this that, that, that makes it ex- extra sinister? <laughs> Well, yeah, I think I think he shouldn't have apologized. He should have rather stood firm and said, right, uh, this is not my belief. And I said what I said. And let's move on. I will do better. You know, I would have apologized by saying something along those lines. But I mean, with that said, uh, at the end of the day, if you can't forgive someone who's genuinely asking for forgiveness, which is what the mob isn't uh, willing to do, you know, they want him canceled. They're not willing to take his apology and say, right, we hear you. If you're unwilling to actually forgive someone who's come out and said sorry, then it says a lot more about you than about them. And at the end of the day, I think uh, cooler heads will prevail. And uh, yeah, Joe Rogan must just keep a cool head. Don't do anything stupid. And the same goes for Spotify as well. Pums, what do you say? (laughs) You know, the thing about being in business, whatever business you're in, you always make decisions based on what's best for your bottom line. And I think Joe made a decision based on what's based for his bottom line. So making the apology, whether sincere or not, is a good move for the business that he is running. Because it keeps him kind of, everybody's talking about him. It keeps him top of mind. It gets people to go back and listen to some of those um <laughs> podcasts and that's that's what it that this it's still show business you know he is still in mm. the business of show and that's what this is all about so it just keeps the dollars raking in and he's he's made the right business decision whether he believes it or not and this being provocative works in america and yeah. that's who Joe is. But you, Being provocative but, but, but I works think in America. Maybe Joe is in a, a unique position because he can't really be cancelled. But for many people, the accusation of racism is a death knell. And, you know, it's kind of like if, if you're a guy and you get accused of rape, even if it's not true, that it's been said is enough to ruin you sometimes. And I do yeah. think, I, I think the cost of real racism is still quite quite high i mean and it should be in some cases but in other cases it sometimes seems to me like it's just it's the last stop when you can't get rid of someone with all the other stuff that they've that that, that you haven't got on them you know unfortunately yeah. i am a major cynic with the motivators of american culture and one of the biggest motivators in american culture is making money Mm. Right, so sure. we over here, far away, far away, may see or hear a particular thing that then makes a blip, but then it dies down and we forget about it. What we never see on the aftermath of it is we never see 
the little tours that they go to. America is a big, big place. It is a big, big market. So for us over here, we might, you know, Spotify might say, oh, we're going to take this person off our platform and we're not going to pay them this and this. What you don't see is you don't see the hundreds of little towns that they get to go on a tour on and bring in and still bring in and rake in their dollars as they then charge whatever, $20 at the door for people to come in. There are millions and millions and millions of Americans who believe in all sorts of different things that may be reprehensible to the rest of us over here, far away. And we may never hear of those people again. But that doesn't mean that those people's lives have stopped. You're, you get the last word, Koketsa. Yeah, uh, I think Pumi has, uh, yeah, she's actually hit it uh, right there, you know, that it is a big place. But I like what you said, Gareth, and that, you know, when all else fails, just throw in the accusation of racism. It seems to be the silver bullet that kills mm. uh, everyone who's deemed to be a vampire of some sort. But, yeah, I think people do need to be mature over this. You know, just because you said something uh, doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. Everything has to be in context. I mean, how do you educate people about the N-word if you don't or if you're not willing to say what the N-word actually is, for example? But yeah, I think props to Joe Rogan, though, for building up what he has built up. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, when all of this dies down and everything fades away, uh, Rogan will still be there. His, pod his podcast will still be there. It will still be the biggest in the world. And the only real change that's going to happen is he might be a little bit more careful about what he says in future. But yeah, he's, uh, he's still uncancelable. And at the end of the day, yeah, uh, just leave him be and find something else to be angry about, you know, or go yeah. find some other celebrity uh, to accuse of racism, I guess. Well, we, we have, they've tried to cancel us, different groups of people at some point, and the burning platform continues. And we're glad to have opinions like yours here as well. Thank you very much, Kogetso. Big thank you to Chris Yelland, who was on a little bit earlier on, and most especially to you for joining us. Pumi, my uh, partner in crime on the burning platform, we will see you next week. Magic. We will see you tomorrow see you next morning, week, guys, for another episode of the show. Don't miss it tomorrow, 6 a.m. Bright and early. Make sure you're awake. Cliffcentral.com.